Thank you very much. I think we also heard earlier that we shouldn't publish too many um, summaries of laminitis research, which is exactly what I've done with my life for the last six years. But um, I just wanted to talk you through basically the programme of research that we've done on laminitis. And while I do work at a private equine hospital, I should probably say now I haven't actually done a day of clinical work since I qualified from vet school. Um, I'm not going to lecture too much about actually what laminitis is and kind of what our results were. I just kind of want to talk through the rationale of the programme that we've done. And we've kind of learned some kind of key aspects about the collaboration between ourselves and the veterinary practitioners that have helped us gather data. Um, so I'm just picking this video up to remind you of what laminitis is. If you thought you were coming to a bovine laminitis talk, it's your opportunity to leave by the back door now. Um, so basically, we're just talking about um, equine clinical laminitis. Majority of cases now cause, we think, by endocrine disease and, it, and kind of showing with this kind of pottery, stilted gait lameness. Um, I'm going to come at, come at this from a slightly different angle. I think a lot of the talks so far in the other parallel sessions have kind of focused on the left-hand side of the slide, which is much more these specific evidence-based research questions where you take a clinical question and try and answer it. And I'm going to try and kind of bridge the gap between what I think evidence-based research and epidemiology are and try and group them together. So not perhaps to answer these more specific questions on the left, but to try and help vets use evidence-based research to kind of answer owner queries. And I, I still think this is evidence-based research. For example, owners are always asking how common is laminitis, why did my horse get laminitis, why did my other horse not get the disease. Um, and so information on frequency and risk factors from a very epidemiological point of view I think is still very important in terms of evidence-based medicine. And it's this kind of right-hand side of the slide that we've focused on in our programme of work to date. Oh, we're stuck on this slide. Um, so the rationale for our, project, our program of work on laminitis came actually from the funders. So World Horse Welfare funded this program of work to date. Um, and they were really interested in trying to gather information on how common laminitis was in Great Britain and what the risk factors were. And I'll be perfectly honest, when I was asked if I wanted to do this as a PhD program, I, I thought we already knew the answers to these questions. So I already thought we knew that laminitis was common and I thought we knew it occurred in small fat ponies that eat too much grass or those with Cushing's disease. Um, so I kind of questioned whether we needed to do this evidence-based research again. Um, so we started, and I think we've been told today that's the right place to start, we started with a systematic review of the available evidence. Um, and we've worked around to design epidemiological tools to gather our frequency and risk factor information. We used a veterinary practice-based cohort study, and I think Annette will agree it is a cohort study. Um, and we nested a case control study for our risk factor information within that. Once we published our new evidence, um, we then moved on to a new study that World Horse Welfare have again very generously funded, which is this time an uh, owner-based cohort study. So we're also gathering our risk factors in a cohort study design um, for that, which comes back a bit to this pyramid of evidence and us saying that a cohort study is better than a case control study for risk factors. Um, so I'll talk to you briefly in, in detail really about the kind of right-hand side of this circle, um, and then I'm going to not really talk too much about the left-hand side. Um, and really what I wanted to talk to you is not so much the results, but the methods that we've used to gather this evidence-based data and try and kind of highlight some of the challenges and lessons that we've learned while we've done that um, and then discuss how I think collaboration is key to all of this aspect. I don't think veterinary practitioners themselves should be doing research projects on their own and I don't think epidemiologists should sit in the research institutes and try and answer the questions the clinicians want to have answered, but I think it's all about collaboration and we need to work together to make that key. So these are the people I think are key players in trying to do these kind of evidence-based research studies. Um, charitable bodies are often the people that are funding these types of research, particularly in our equine field. 
Um, we also have to work with IT consultants and the PR officers to make sure that we're doing the studies in the best available way and we're promoting it to the right people. Epidemiologists and laminitis researchers together are helping us in our study to get, gather this information. Horse owners, veterinary practitioners, practice administrators, and I should also put in the nursing team there. The equine nursing team have helped us a lot in some of our practices, and then numerous other people. But we've got to remember at the end that the horse is the most important person in this field. So we all need to collaborate together to try and help equine welfare. So if we go back to that flow diagram, which is in the conference proceedings, I just kind of want to talk you through who collaborated with us in all of our steps and what key challenges we found when we tried to do all of those. Um, so as I say, we started off with our systematic reviews of available evidence. Um, we, have two, we did two of those, two separate ones, and you could kind of debate whether these are true systematic reviews or not. But basically, our first systematic review was trying to gather evidence on the frequency of laminitis. So we were interested in kind of collating all the data which has looked at the frequency of equine laminitis in the general horse population. Um, and that kind of helps, going back to that first slide that I showed about the left and right hand side questions, that helps vets answer the question of how common is laminitis and how they can kind of relate that information to the types of horses that they see. And our second systematic review question was to look at the risk factors for laminitis. So we were really collating all of the previous studies which had done any type of study design to try and gather data on risk factors for the disease. And going back to those questions, that helps vets try and tell the owners why perhaps their horse did develop laminitis, why the other one didn't, and perhaps what they can do to try and stop them getting laminitis again in the future. So collaboration here probably isn't as important as it'll get onto when we talk about observational study design, but it, I think it's important to remember there are still a large number of people involved in these systematic reviews. So in, in my systematic reviews, we were funded by World Horse Welfare, as I said. Um, we had a group of epidemiologists, which were my two um, supervisors. So I had an epidemiologist at Animal Health Trust, an epidemiologist at the Royal Veterinary College, and I had a laminitis researcher who worked um, also at Animal Health Trust to start with, and then over in Australia, who'd also done his PhD on laminitis. And then we used veterinary practitioners as part of our expert discussion to make sure that we would um, consider the right types of risk factors and the right type of studies to kind of develop these reviews. Um, and then we also used practice administrators and PhD students at a later date to kind of um, see if we thought that our reviews were coming out with the right sort of data. Um, so this is just a flow diagram on the left-hand side that shows the structure of our systematic review. It's a very um, widely used flow diagram from Moher to show that basically we had 17 studies on the frequency of laminitis and then 69 studies which investigated any type of risk factor for the disease. Um, but in terms of collaboration, I think it's important to realise that actually there's a much more subtle collaborative effect going on here. And if you think of all the studies we looked at, so if you add together our 17 and 69 studies, if perhaps five people were involved in the collaboration of each of those two studies, then we're kind of amalgamating the data from about 450 other research groups. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much more time talking about systematic reviews, but as we've discussed earlier in this conference, I think it is a really important starting point to kind of help you generate your own clinical questions to make sure that someone already hasn't done it. Um, your first question is, are there sufficient data out there already to answer my questions? Do I need to do a new prospective cohort study and a case control study, or can I tell owners how common laminitis is just from my systematic review? And so then these were the conclusions from each of those two reviews. Um, for our frequency study, we concluded that the two high-quality publications, so there were only two that we ranked, we, we gave a quantitative score to the papers that we found in our review, and we found that only two were considered to be high-quality. Um, and that was in a number of criteria, it wasn't just on study design, but it was in a number of criteria, for example, 
um, were horses generalizable to the population that we were interested in. Um, and so we found that the two high-quality publications suggested that laminitis affected between 1.5% and 23.8% of animals, which is obviously really wide. Um, so we figured that we need to gather more information on the frequency of the disease because those type of data just aren't good enough. And then when we looked at risk factors, again, we didn't find very many high-quality studies of risk factors either. Um, and many of the publications which we did find in our review had focused on really um, easily measurable risk factors. So there's been this emphasis on laminitis research to date to focus on um, non-modifiable risk factors such as age, breed, sex, because they're easy things for the, the, the epidemiologists or laminitis researchers to do in practice because we have that data in the clinical system. But those types of risk factors aren't very useful for the horse owner because they can't make their horse grow any taller and they can't make it any younger. So we need to focus on risk factors which actually the horse owner can modify if we want to try and improve the welfare of this disease. So after we did our systematic reviews, I think that generated enough evidence to say that we were justified to go on to do observational epidemiological studies, which is why we started with the design of our tools. Um, so there are a couple of things that we need to consider when we do that. We did this as two separate studies, as I said before. So we started with our frequency study, which was our cohort study. And the things we really wanted to talk about were what was our case definition going to be? What were we going to call an episode of laminitis? Um, what numerator data were we going to use? And what denominator data were we also going to use? And for the purposes of this study, we'll go into more detail, but we decided that we would use a veterinary diagnosed episode of laminitis as our case definition. And I'll come on to one of the big challenges we had, but we also thought that we would start off with a very broad case definition, and we would be able to filter that as we went on. So we thought we would gather the clinical information on laminitis, and then we could stratify our data set on specific clinical signs as we went later on with the study. But that didn't actually happen. Um, so yeah, for our study, we used veterinary diagnosis of laminitis. So our, numerate, our numerator data were first opinion cases of veterinary laminitis, and our denominator data were the kind of visited and registered horse population within each practice we recruited. Um, and then for risk factors, we, based on our systematic review, had come up with all of the risk factors that had previously been suggested. Um, and so we decided to investigate those risk factors in a, a more specific way. And these are just some of the sections. It was quite a long questionnaire. We had a 16-page questionnaire by the end of it, which kind of goes against all rules of the questionnaire. But um, it's a 16-page questionnaire. But we decided that the most important person to answer these type of data were actually the horse owner, because the, the vets don't know a lot of this data, detail, which is why we did a combined study design using the vets to give our more accurate case definition, but the owners to give us information on risk factors. Um, so I just wanted to talk briefly about the tool that we developed for our frequency aspect. Um, as I said before, we used our veterinary uh, reporting for our active episodes of laminitis. So we developed what we call a laminitis reporting form. And then talking about the key players that were involved in this step, again, World Horse Welfare funded this, so we have our charitable body, and they have a really good active veterinary advisory committee. So we would meet with them regularly to get their input. They don't just provide the funding for the study, but they also help with the study design and discuss our study as we go along. And then it was the same key people that I spoke to you about before. So I was the PhD student, we had the two epidemiologists, our laminitis researcher, and then we also recruited some veterinary practices to help us with our piloting and our expert discussion of the form. So we were lucky at the Animal Health Trust where I was based that we had the Centre for Equine Studies where we had two expert equine clinicians there. But we also recruited some vet practices across England that we went to visit. Um, and I also took the form to the American Association of Equine Practitioners Conference and just randomly annoyed people in the lunch breaks and coffee breaks to ask for their opinion on our form. So this is what it looked like. We, um, 
we tried really hard to make this as simple as possible. It goes back to some of the principles from Vet Compass, where if you ask people to do too much, then you get nothing at all. Um, and in conjunction with talking to the original British Veterinary Association study on laminitis, which had been tried to run a little bit before our study, they've got very few data. So that study had tried to look at the clinical signs of the disease and get blood samples and get radiographs sent from vets. Um, and they didn't get enough cases to be able to actually publish the analysis they wanted to do for that. So their major advice was, well, their first advice was don't do this study at all. But I said I'd already signed up for it and I'd moved to new market, so I was going to persevere. Um, so my compromise was I would try and do the study, but I'd make it as simple as possible. So that was the rationale for this laminitis reporting form. The bit in the yellow is kind of obsolete for our frequency estimate. So in terms of the frequency estimate, all we needed the vets to do was fill in some very basic identifying detail of the horse or pony, or even just an ID number, uh, the date of clinical examination. And then they were given these tick box options, which were a yes, no, or didn't assess option for a number of clinical signs on lameness, stance, which legs were affected, and then whether they had any acute or chronic clinical signs of laminitis. And then we'd already actually identified these. So we, once we'd recruited our practices, which I'll come on to later, um, we'd already identified these with the practice ID, but we also wondered if we could actually get the veterinary ID itself, just in case we wanted to discuss that case more with the individual vet. But even if you missed out the whole of page two, we would get the information we needed for our frequency study from page one. Um, in terms of our tools that we developed for our um, frequency study, we did a, a little bit of piloting, as I said, with our practices in England. Um, and these were some of the responses that they said which formulated this. Um, and I'll tell you why some of these then became challenges. Um, so they said they preferred a paper format. I don't know if that would still be true now. So this study was done 2008 onwards. Um, but they said they wanted a paper format because vets in general practice tend to be driving around and they wanted to be able to just fill in the checklist of clinical signs when they were there at the horse. So rather than having something electronic, um, and I don't know now if perhaps with more access to smartphones and tablets where they're actually an electronic form now would be better. But paper format was preferred, which is why we made the paper form. Um, as I said, we tried to make it one page of A4 and there were checklist options only. We decided we didn't need any additional data. So actually, acute laminitis, it doesn't have any radiographic changes. So acute laminitis is literally just pain within the hoof. Um, and it's only chronic laminitic cases where you see changes on x-ray. So we figured that if, if our definition of laminitis was broad enough, and we talked about active laminitis as our case definition, then we didn't need radiographic changes to prove that anything had happened. And we had an option for didn't assess, so that we knew the difference between a clinical sign not being there and the vet not wanting to look so that it didn't put them off filling in the form if they hadn't assessed all of those clinical signs. And we also had the option for anonymous reporting. So for data protection reasons, if the owner didn't want to be identified, we allowed them to send it back without having to name the horse or horse owner. As I said, we'd already pre-identified them so that if they didn't fill it in properly, which a lot of them didn't, we could still tell which practice it came from and still use that data. And we provided reply paid envelopes for all of these forms. We sent the practices, we recruited batches of these forms with reply paid envelopes to stick a lot in when they came back. Um, in terms of our denominator data, as I said before, we gathered data on the horses and ponies that were attended by the vets and also the horses and ponies registered by the vets because that gave us two different types of um, frequency estimates we could publish. Um, so what we did here was we just sent them a form every couple of months asking them to tell us how many horses they actually had registered for that time period. Um, and it looks a little bit more complicated than it is, but really they were only asked two questions. Um, 
or three, really. So we asked them, we told them how many laminitis reporting formats we'd held back for that time frame. We asked them how many laminitis cases they actually had seen, but maybe forgotten to send us the form back for. And these often were very different. Um, and then we also asked them the number of horses or ponies attended, but if they couldn't do that for any reason, um, we asked them to tell us the number of equine clients that were attended as a proxy measure instead. And then for our second frequency estimate, we asked about the number that were registered, and again, if they couldn't work out the number that were registered with their practice, um, how many horse clients were perhaps registered with the practice. So a lot of clients, a lot of practice management systems, for example, don't record dead horses very well. So sometimes actually the equine clients are a better proxy measure. And in terms of collaboration, this is where our practice manager and our IT systems became a key player. So in many instances, the vets themselves had no idea how to gather this denominator data. They were happy to fill in the clinical sign form for our numerator, but the denominator data was beyond them. So that's when we developed quite a close collaboration with the practice manager, who was often much better at using the computer systems, and they would actually generate this data for us instead. Um, in terms of our tools for risk factors, as I've already said, we first of all did our systematic review and we found what risk factors not only was there evidence for before, but what risk factors had been postulated before, but for which there were no evidence. Um, and that's why the questionnaire was so long, um, because we wanted to try and get some data as a kind of scoping exercise and a kind of fishing exercise for risk factors in the first instance. Um, we developed two questionnaires, so this is a case control study, so we had a laminitis questionnaire for our cases and we had a management questionnaire for our controls. Um, we did consider whether we could word them so that they were the same questionnaire, because sometimes it's good not to flag up what the disease is to the people that are taking part in the study, because that can introduce some bias. Um, but the way we were wording the questions, because it was a case control study and we wanted to look at a time frame before the disease occurred, they kind of needed to know what disease we were talking about. So we had our laminitis questionnaire, again it was all pre-identified before it was sent out, and our management questionnaire, I'll talk about how we recruited them in a minute. Um, we tried to make this questionnaire as simple as possible, and actually when we did some piloting of this questionnaire, even though it was 16 pages long, it only took an average of 20 minutes to fill in. Um, so there were almost all tick box options, um, and it was all structured with flow sections, so that if, you, if your horse was never turned out, you didn't have to answer any of the grazing questions, etc., etc. Um, again, we piloted this at the Animal Health Trust before we actually launched it. Again, paper format was preferred. Um, as I said, we logically structured this with our skip responses and our checklist options. Um, we also printed on coloured paper. There's feedback in some of the study design manuals that if you print something on coloured paper, then people are more likely to respond to them. Um, and we coloured, coloured them differently to try and make life easier for the practice managers. So our laminitis questionnaire was on yellow paper and our management questionnaire was on blue paper because the wording of it wasn't enough. It was much easier to say to the practice, send that person the yellow questionnaire than them having to read the title and get the subtle differences. And we had them professionally printed and professionally bound because there's evidence that those types of questionnaires are much more readily filled in. Um, and again, we sent these all out with reply paid envelopes as well to try and enhance our response rates. Uh, the key players for our risk factor study are really the same as our frequency study. Apart from this time, um, again, we had to use horse owners instead of the vets to gather the data. And our practice administrators also became really important here for sending out our control questionnaires, because our control questionnaires went to horses that didn't have laminitis. Um, so what we asked them to do was send out our control questionnaires with um, randomly selected bills or randomly selected newsletters that the practices were sending out. Um, and we weighted the number of questionnaires they sent out with the number of horses that they had. So we would send a batch of 
between two and 12 questionnaires to the practices each month, and the practice administrators dealt with handing them to the controls. So once we designed our epidemiological tools, we moved on to our study design. Um, clearly, it wasn't feasible to collect data from every practice in Great Britain that looks at horses and ponies. Um, but equally, we decided not to do just a truly random sample, which would have been our least biased study design, um, because we considered it really important to kind of recruit compliant practices that were going to be able to take part in this study, which was going to be taking place over two years. Um, so these were the steps we went through to try and get a list of compliant practices. We used the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons electronic database, um, which lists all of the equine practices that are registered with that, uh, equine and mixed practices. Um, so all of the ones that were registered as treating horses, and we filtered them out. And we wrote to the practices asking them a series of very basic questions in our first letter. And we tried to incentivize them by saying that if they replied, they would, when I say big prize, I'm being quite ironic because it was a £10 voucher for Waitrose. Um, but we tried to incentivize them to reply in the first instance. Um, we asked for them to reply even if they weren't interested in taking part, so that we could try and not hassle people that had perhaps forgotten to reply. Um, and this time we invited them to respond by telephone, fax, email or post, any option that was available to them. Um, we didn't provide reply paid envelopes for this initial screening because of the number of practices we wrote to. That was going to blow our budget. Um, but we did publish letters in the veterinary press, such as the veterinary records and the veterinary magazines, to try and alert the practices about our study. But we didn't get a very good response rate. Um, so our response to our initial letter was really low. Um, and as I said, this was despite us asking them to reply even if they weren't interested. And even if they weren't interested, they were still entered into our prize draw. I don't think they knew the prize wasn't quite as good as it could be. Um, but yeah, we got a no response from 85% of the practices we wrote to. Um, so we wrote to over 1,000 practices and we got no response from 993 of them, which was obviously not great. Um, so in terms of kind of lessons that we've learned and the challenges that we think occurred here, these are some of the options I think we should consider if we're going to do this type of study again. Um, perhaps practices just don't want to take part in a study on laminitis. Perhaps they don't think it's interesting or relevant. Um, so a lack of interest, you can't force people that don't want to be interested to take part. And particularly in the study where we were trying to re recruit compliant practices, we took a lack of response as a kind of indicator that they weren't going to be compliant. So we didn't follow up these practices with a second letter. Um, perhaps it was poor timing. We sent the practice um, initial letter out just after Christmas. Um, and perhaps this coincided with people being away for, for New Year or for holidays. Um, so I would perhaps recommend that you think more carefully about your timing. We thought that was good timing because we'd just come back from Christmas holiday. And it was the first thing we did when we came back at the start of the New Year. But in retrospect, I think that was probably bad timing. Um, we only used written communication for sending out our letter, even though we asked for responses in other formats. Um, but it would have been a lot more time-consuming to telephone these practices and do that. Um, but perhaps not using written communication, but email communication might have been better. Um, the other thing we did was we addressed the initial letter anonymously. So the RCVS database doesn't contain the details of, of who to really contact within the practice. So our letters just went to the senior equine partner. And I think that could have looked like junk mail a lot of times and was probably not even read by the person that might have been interested in taking part. Um, so I think I would advise if we were doing this again that to try and enhance response rates, perhaps try and even just select a random name. But if you could have less anonymized initial letters, they might be better received. And we didn't provide reply paid envelopes, but we couldn't afford to do that. So um, that was a challenge, but I don't think we've learned anything from that because that was impossible. 
So that was our first phase of recruitment. So we got our, our responses back from our small proportion of those 15% um, of practices which did reply. Most of them were interested when they did reply, but there were a couple that had, for example, given up equine work or the practice had been amalgamated with another practice. But those who registered an interest and were perhaps able to help with their study, we then sent a second letter to. Um, and this time it had a much more detailed explanation of all the study objectives. And we did this on purpose to try and determine the suitability of our practices to see whether it was worth recruiting them or not. Um, this is a bit of a boring slide, but I've highlighted in yellow the kind of important questions that we asked. Um, so first of all, did they want to contribute data? Yes, no. Um, as I said, most were actually really keen that did reply. Um, so we had about a 98.5% response rate saying that they were keen in providing data to us. And then we asked how many vets were engaged in equine practice because uh, we figured that it would be better for our study if we had the entire practice contributing data. Otherwise, it becomes a little bit biased and skewed if you only have certain vets within the practice that are doing that. Um, so we asked how many vets worked in equine practice, whether they would all be willing to happy, all be willing and able to contribute data for the study. So that was to try and gather information on whether our numerator data might be less biased. And then we asked about owner contact details. So clearly for our risk factor study to work, because it was nested within our owner cohort, we needed to have ability to contact those horse owners. Um, and in many instances, this kind of data protection for this part of the study falls with the actual veterinary practice. So we asked whether we would be able to receive owner contact details for their laminitis cases. Um, and we asked whether it would be possible to send our control, our equine management questionnaires to our non-laminitic horse owners, so as I said before, those were either with invoices or practice newsletters, but practices which didn't do that sort of thing, if for example they sent out electronic billing, they, they, we didn't think they would be able to send out our control questionnaires as well. Um, so that our final question was um, a lesson that we learned from another study at the Animal Health Trust which had kind of done a similar study design, which was that using a computerised patient information system was key to trying to get denominator data out of the system. So I think nowadays most practices do use computerized practice systems. Um, in hindsight, I should have asked not only do they use the system, but do they know how to use the system? Um, because there was a big discrepancy within practices having a computerized record system, but actually that just locking the data in because they couldn't get anything out of it. So in hindsight, I wouldn't just ask whether they do have computerized record systems, but whether they actually know how to extract the data from them and whether they can do that. And perhaps a kind of pilot study with the practices to see whether they could give you the information would have been a good step. But we didn't do that. Um, so in, in terms of our phase two, we selected 28 practices that were able to achieve all of our requirements. Um, they were mostly in England, but there were also four in Scotland and two in Wales. And we did some spatial analysis to, say, to see if these practices did represent the underlying equine veterinary population. Um, so we did some cluster detection analysis to see... I can't get the pointer to work. Oh, no, I can. You just can't see it on the screen. Um, but we wanted to see if that really was a big gap, um, but actually there aren't very many big practices there that we missed out. Um, so as I say, we decided to use our practice recruitment to, to base our nested case control study in. This is actually a picture of my dad on my horse when he sent me a text saying I tried to take a selfie in the field and Shamrock uh, came in and ruined it. So, so horse owners know much more about their horse than the vets, which is why we thought it was important to gather this data. Um, and there were several options on the laminators reporting form to, to say how the practices wanted to give out that data, whether they wanted to send the control questionnaire to them or whether they wanted to send us the contact details and we could then send them the questionnaire. Um, and then this is just a flow diagram to show the recruitment of those practices I've talked through. So we started off 
by recognising that there were nearly 4,000 practices in the database and us recruiting our 28 practices. Um, and then these are just the key players that we use for our practice um, recruitment. It's very similar to all the other steps of our study design so far. Um, in terms of our cohort study for our frequency estimates, however, these are the key players at the bottom. So the veterinary practitioner and the practice administrators for both the numerator and denominator data, and then myself trying to chivvy them along by asking them to provide the data whenever they forgot. And I want to start off with a positive and say we did actually quite well in our cohort study. Um, we managed to recruit 547 laminitis reporting forms for active episodes of laminitis over our study period. Um, sometimes things went wrong. So, for example, we got the same horse, the same vet, and the same date for the same active episode. I don't know whether the vet photocopied it and filled it in twice. Um, but there were some errors here, but we managed to check them when we got our data back, and we managed to exclude them from our data set. Um, so in terms of positivity, we were able to generate our frequency estimates, we were able to do prevalence studies and incidence estimates, and we were able to do that both by season, by practice, and by region. Um, but it wasn't perfect. And certainly, most practices seem to um, under-report their laminitis cases. So in that first form I showed you where we asked them actually how many laminitis reporting forms should you have sent back but you forgot, and about 81.3% of practices admitted that there were some laminitis reporting forms that we hadn't received. Uh, and actually only three practices accurately reported the number of laminitis, laminitis episodes for most of the study period, so three of the 28. Um, and this degree of under-reporting um, varied from the one practice that reported every case um, to sometimes an 11-fold under-reporting of our laminitis estimates. So we tried to look at this a bit further, and this is kind of one of the other lessons that we've learnt. It's perhaps about study fatigue. Um, so our study, as I said, was over a two-year study period. The pink line at the top is the monthly agreements between the laminitis reporting forms and the actual number of cases that we saw. And the blue line at the bottom is the uh, monthly return of denominator data from the practices as time went on. And as you can see, it was kind of a gradual decline. Um, possible reasons for this, some kind of lessons that we've perhaps learned that we would do again in the future. Um, for the denominator estimates in particular, most practices, they stay very stable. So the number of horses registered and the number of horses visited tend to stay quite stable across the time period. And I don't know whether we didn't really explain to practices well enough why we needed this changing denominator in order to express our rates properly. Study fatigue is obviously a huge thing, so did practices just get bored of us asking for all this data and did they get tired of sending us um, information? Um, practitioners in private veterinary practice, I guess their main goal is, they would tell us, it's to improve equine welfare, but probably to make a lot of money. And helping us with our study wasn't helping them make any money. We didn't provide any incentives, we didn't provide any funding for taking part in our study. Um, so I do think that practitioners did just get tired of helping with quite an intrusive study. Um, but equally, practices might have been less able to assist at certain times of the year. Um, so when I looked at it by month and I combined my two years of study data together, even when I was contacting practices at least twice a month and I initiated a practice newsletter, um, it seemed as if March and April were quite bad times for us to get this denominator data and this um, reporting forms back at the same time. Um, so I wonder if, particularly in equine practice, this is the end of the winter season, it's the start of the foaling season and breeding season, and whether actually practitioners are just too busy at that time of year to help with these types of study. Um, so one of my recommendations would be to consider the timing of your study and whether that actually fits with the type of practices that you're trying to recruit, or whether you might end up losing data at key times of year. 
Um, and then talking about our case control study, this again was the same players, but as I said before, the horse owner became the key person providing us data for our case control study. Um, in terms of our case control study, again, it was a success. I'll start off with the positives. Um, we wanted to, we did a sample size calculation before we started, and we needed 150 cases and 600 controls. And by the end of the two years, we had 191 cases and 819 controls. So we succeeded and exceeded our sample size calculation. Um, the map on the left-hand side just shows the practices in yellow, and then the cases and controls recruited in red and green. And then the, this is just a flow diagram. There's a lot in it, but you can read the paper if you're very interested. Um, showing the differences, I spoke earlier very briefly about the ways that we could gather the risk factor information. So either the vets sent out the questionnaires or I could send out the questionnaires. I thought it was a really important take home message from here, um, which was actually, we could have got a lot more laminitis questionnaires. I said before we had 577 laminitis reporting firms, but we only got 191 case questionnaires. So we've only converted 33% of our case questionnaires. Um, and the reasons for that are perhaps that the owner didn't want to take part in the study, which is perfectly fair enough. Equally, if we'd provided some incentives, maybe we would have had a better response rate. Um, but I think what's really crucial here is this intermediate stage between vets and the owners. And somebody did tell me at the end of my PhD that the one take-home message they'd taken from my PhD was that we shouldn't work with vets in practice. Um, and obviously the key issues here are perhaps questionnaires got lost or perhaps the, the time delay between the vet having it and the vet sending it out would make a difference. So we tried to look at this in a bit more detail. Um, this is a flow diagram showing how our questionnaire returns broke down. Um, and then that's the same slide. I'm just going to skip over these quickly. But this was my key take-home message. Um, was that we had a statistically significant difference in the return rates from owners contacted by us, which was actually good, to the owners contacted by the practices. And in terms of um, database protect data protection, you can't always get the owner contact details directly. But it's certainly in our study was a much more successful venture if we could contact the horse owners. Um, and I wonder if that's just because when we did it, we were able to personalise the covering letter and personalise the questionnaire, so it made them feel like they were taking part in a more important study. Um, so then, just briefly, we then published our evidence. That's the next step on our wheel. And despite all the limitations and the kind of challenges we came up with, we managed to publish a lot of data from our PhD. Um, and kindly, World Health Welfare then funded our new owner-based um, cohort study. So it's called Care About Laminitis, um, and it's with the same people involved, so it's the same collaboration. Um, we've modified our tools. So this time we're using very similar data collection tools, but we've tried to make them much more user-friendly for the horse owner. So we've changed all our terminology along from the veterinary terms to more horse owner-friendly terms, and we've put in pictures, for example. So instead of asking, does the horse have a convex sole, we've put a picture of what a convex sole looks like. Um, and this is interesting because th this study has actually become a lot more difficult. So it sounds as if going directly to the horse owner would be better and actually an easier study design. Um, but actually going to the horse owner has actually required us to work much more closely with, for example, IT consultants and PR officers because we're doing this as a cohort uh, web-based study design. Um, and I don't know if this video will work because it's not, but um, I'm just going to talk over it while it plays. But basically, we've had to work really hard to try and recruit enough horse owners for our study. Um, we started off with our sample size calculation, saying that we needed to follow approximately uh, 3,333 horses for 18 months. Um, and we're nowhere near that with our horse years at risk. So currently, we have approximately 900 horse years at risk. And we've been collecting data for the last 22 months. 
um, and that is despite this intensive collaboration we've had with World Horse Welfare helping us promote this study with our study design, um, IT specialists, horse owners, the press. Um, so I wanted to show this video just to not only talk about, I think it's quite a cute video, um, but we've had a lot of collaboration with other sources of information from this study. too late to sign up if you did have a horse and you wanted to take part because we're nearly finished. Um, so just to conclude, like I just said, our challenges for our laminitis cohort study are even greater than the study challenges I had for my PhD. Um, and I think we need to work together to try and work out how we can gather data directly from the horse owner in a kind of useful and doable way because we've, we've certainly worked really hard. We have a website, we have a Facebook group, um, we've written letters and magazine articles and we've really struggled to get enough data to our study. So in conclusion, I think collaboration is key. Um, I don't think we should be trying to do these studies on our own. Um, we can't just work as epidemiologists and laminitis researchers and not talk to the vets. Um, and equally, we can't not talk to the horse owners because they're the people that own the horse and know the most about it. Um, so that was my take-home message, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. <laughs>